a, a well-nurtured family. The, the Apostle John said this in his third, uh, third letter, the third epistle. He said this, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, what's fascinating about that is he's, he's referring to the body of Christ. He's referring to the, the people of God, and yet he is not misusing that word children. It means very much that, my family, my mishpacha, the, 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 the community, the, the assembly of the, of the family of God. And yet, how much does that apply to us in our hearts as we desire in our own families? You see, it's not a separate thing, and that's what we'll see as we, as we kind of go through this this morning. So the first thing I want to do to look at is this, is what is family? And I found this chart. This was in uh, Anchor Yale, um, uh, Anchor Yale Commentary. Can you go to the chart? And it shows this. It's that, that family is literally the central unit of ancient Israel, and everything extends out from this family relationship, the relationship with God, the relationship with each other as a nation, as a people, the relationship to the land, all of this comes from this unit called family. In fact, the the word for family doesn't even exist in Hebrew in that sense, the way that we, we think of it. There's actually three words for family. The first one refers to, and there's four senses. There's four meanings, three words. The, the first meaning is God says, you are my family. We are of the household of God. Israel is the household of the Lord. So that's the first sense, that as a people, we are, we are, we are God's family. The, the second sense is the word tribe. How many know there are 12 tribes in Israel? Well, where, what are those tribes? They're sons of Jacob right? They're all sons. Everyone is a family relationship. And so uh, that sense of family then becomes not only the people who are alive with me, not only the people who extend from me, but all the people in my family, all the way back from the beginning, both here on earth and not here, are all my family. That's the tribe I'm in. That's what I'm a part of. And this was a very real part of what it meant to be family in Israel. Then there's a second sense. That sense was each one of those families were made up of clans. Have you ever heard the term clans? They, the, the, the term is mishpacha, um, and, and that carried with it a very specific meaning. Um, and and the, 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 the government, the way that they ruled themselves was as a part of this clan. That clan took responsibility for everyone in the family together. There were roles that were fulfilled for society to work because they were part of this family, this greater family. But then there was a smaller break in the, in the word there. Uh, by the way, well, I'll say that in a minute. By the way, there's a, there's a third word for family. And the word is Beit Avi, Beit Avi or Beit Av. What it is, is the house of my father, the house of my father. And, and again, this carries just a little bit different meaning than, than what we're used to. Because we think, you know, like my household, the people in my home. This would include all the people who were alive from the, from the, the, the oldest living patriarch of the family would all be in that household. But it would not only include the actual blood descendants, it would include all the married uh, um, family that came into it. So, so any of the women that married into the family would be part of that. But it would not only include that, it would include all of the servants 
and people who would associate would all be under, that's my immediate, that would be my immediate family, the way we see it, the way we understood it. And so there were these three senses of, of family. In, and so from that place, we're going to look at a few scriptures and see how this connects us to these, the sense of ancient Israel of God, Israel, and the land. So uh, first thing is this, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. It's a little poem here. It's a three stanza poem. And, and, uh, and the first stanza is this. So God created man in his own image. So the, the subject is God. What's he doing? He's creating. And wh- who's he creating? He's creating man. And, and how is man uh, modified? Man in the image of God. So God's the subject. He's creating. And he's creating man in the image of God. Well, the second line of the poem changes just a little bit. And it says, in the image of God, he meaning God, created him. So he switches it. God had a, so man's purpose is to image God. So God's purpose in creation was to create man to be his imager. So God's purpose in creation was to create man to be his imager. And now we get this, we get this last sentence in the, in the or this last, yeah, last phrase in the poem, male and female, he created them. So what switches out? The image of God switches out with male and female. So to be the image of God, we were created male and female. So there's something about being created male and female that reflects the image of God. And then he says he created them. He goes from him to them. In other words, it's not just a single singular. It's not just half of humanity, but it's all of humanity. All of humanity. And this is the first sense. Now, now the Bible explains this a little more when we get to the second chapter. After everything God creates, everything, he says, it's good, right? He creates light, it's good. He creates land, it's good. He creates fish, it's good. Birds, it's good. Everything's good. But then we get this sentence in the second chapter, and it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, wait a minute. I thought, I thought it was good. I thought, I thought everything was good. He creates man. He says, it's not good. Now, right now, I know some of you are thinking about the person sitting next to you. Don't have those thoughts, you know, stop that. Why is it not good? Because he's alone. Why is that not good? Well, we just read about it. Because he's not yet reflecting fully the image of God. He's not yet reflecting fully the image of God. And so what's God do? He, he, he says what? He says, I will make a helper. I will make a helper fit for him. And he, and he brings all the animals to him and, and Adam names all the animals. And when, when he's all done naming all of them, he finds, he looks around. There's none who is an equal companion for him. And so what does God do? God does just, the, just something very different than what we would have done. Okay, so if we wanted to, how did God make man? He went and got some dirt. And he put man together, and, I, I, you know, very often when I'm in marriage counseling and I say man was made from dirt, the wives go, yeah, I know this. But anyway, he put some dirt together and he made man, and then he breathed the spirit, his spirit into him, and he brought him alive. And so if, if you were God and you were going to now make a companion foot, fit for him, what would you do? Well, we know the story, but if you didn't know the story, what you and I would do is we'd go get more dirt. That's what we do, and that's not what God does. 
What God does is he goes and takes man and he takes, it's, you know, he says rib. We don't really know what part it was. You know, it's, he takes some component out of the side of man, not from underneath of him, not from above him, out of his side, a companion. And he forms this woman out of man. And so you had this one that becomes two and he brings the two together and we get, uh, we get Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. So we went from one to split to two who are now back as one, yet they're two. No, they're one. No, they're two. No, they're one. Which one is it? The answer is yes. He says, now they reflect me. Now they're my image. You see, because we have a God who is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we know that he is Father, he is Son, and he is Holy Spirit. We are to reflect that in our relationship. So the fundamental, the fundamental component of all of society, the fundamental reflection of the very person and being of God is family. It's family. It begins with this relationship with, with, uh, in marriage and then exp- expands down in, into cre- uh, the, the creation or the uh, procreation of children. So... This, this is from Ankle, Anchor Yale Bible Commentary that kind of expands this family, the understanding of family in Israelite culture. It says this, first, the family was the basic unit of Israelite kinship and social structure. All relationships in society were understood in light of family. All social interaction, now that social interaction goes far more than just you know, texting one another in social media. That's something we mean by social action. We're talking about the, the essence of culture itself was family. And what is it? The, the military came out of family. In fact, one of the words for family, I told you the word was mishpacha. There's a synonym, and the synonym is elef, elef. That synonym means a thousand. It's a military term. And when they needed to build up the army, they would go to the mishpacha, the clans, and say, send the elef, send your family members. And that's where it would come from. So protection Protection, security came from family. But not only that, the judicial functions. When there was, a, they, you, if you ever notice and you read through the Torah, you don't see, uh, you know, this, this formal setup of a government like ours. Most of the judicial uh, uh, exercises that were going on were inside a family. You know, they, they, they set up these places you could go in a time of refuge if you accidentally killed someone. Why? Because the, 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 the avenger of blood would come after you. Guess who that was? A family member. If you were poor and you were in debt and you had to sell yourself your, uh, as a slave or you had to sell your land, who was to redeem you? A kinsman redeemer, a family member. The family member was the, was the, the social uh, uh, support structure in Israel. But it wasn't only that. It was also the basic economic unit of Israel's land tenure. So uh, it had wide-ranging response. Leverite marriage is all about the land. Kinsman redeemer of it is all about the land. So, and what's fascinating about this is, is it sets up a society in which every 50 years, everything returned back to the original owners. What do you have? You are resetting any kind of oppression that began to establish itself in the land by this. Because everybody got a new start. Everybody got a fresh do-over. You didn't know they were part Irish. You got a mulligan. Anyway. So few of you play golf and know what I'm talking about. When I play golf, I'm really Irish. I get multiple mulligans. Anyway, 
Third, it was central to the importance and the experience and preservation of the covenant relationship with Yahweh. It was central, and we're going to get to that in a little while. We'll see the scripture, but I mentioned it already. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And it goes on and it says, that is done in the context of family. That is done, this relationship is done in the context of family. And everything about family life was about this relationship with God. And like I said, we'll develop this some more. So what do we see? We see a fundamental unit of society. Oops, I can't hide. The basic basis of kinship and social structure, providing military and judicial covering, the basic economic unit, providing land tenure, and all that goes to preserving the nation itself, the central means of experiencing and preserving covenant relationship with Yahweh. So thoughts? I had thoughts I had on the, on the church and family and looking at this and looking, this was the context that birthed for us what we have that the apostles give us and all that we have in their writings about family. And what do we see when we see the family? The family is our, what is our first unit of defense Th- against the threats of the outside world, against spiritual powers. You have, so the first thing you have is everything that uh, is your family becomes your safe space from all of the threat of the world. I mean, you know that this world is frightening, chaotic, harsh, difficult. I mean, we'd like to have a place where you go and it's like, I can go, I can step in here and take a deep breath. Just God developed family for this. And that family, as we'll see, is more than just the people in my home. It's the people I know God with. The people I know God with. And it's also a sense of internal accountability because what happens in family? I love this. Jordan Peterson says this. The first thing you discover when you're married is how selfish you are. First thing, I get no amens on that. You can say to the person next to you, he's talking about you. You're allowed to say that. <laughs> the first thing you discover, right? The first thing you don't, that's one thing you do not have to teach children is what? How to be selfish. You never heard a child say, mine. You have to teach them to say, ours. What's the big word you say? Share. <laughs> you never see a child come out and go, I want to Share. Right? That's internal accountability. We grow and become more like Christ inside of that safe place, except when it's not. So the economic unit, we're to take care of one another, provide for the widows, the fatherless, the poor, and it becomes the model of preserving and believing loyalty to God. Let me say this. Family is literally the model for preserving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't think so? Destroy family and what happens? If you want to destroy the image of God in this world, what do you got to do? Just destroy family. Just destroy family. There's not a person in this room that's not touched by that. 
All right, so the ideal and the real. Now, what I like about the Bible is the Bible gives us the ideal, and then it shows us that it deals with the real. We got all kinds of structures of family in the Bible. This is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. I love this. So the first thing we see, we see Adam and Eve, right? And we see two children. It's like the perfect, you know, 2.2, right? Uh, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel, we got this perfect family. But you know what? The first thing we see happen in that family is two brothers hating on one another. In fact, one kills another. Nobody's seen hatred in their family. And then we get a, another example in Kings. We have a widow and her child. And, and, and they literally, a prophet comes to him and says, feed me. He says, well, you know what? I'm about to go in and make my last loaf. But this is family. This is what they have. This is who's left. And then we get another picture of Ruth and Naomi. Now, this is, this is a mother and her daughter-in-law. This is a mother that her, that her husband died, her sons died. Naomi, Naomi lost, sorry, Ruth lost her husband. And yet, what do they do? They say, we're family. We're family. And we have, we have another situation where we have a husband, two wives, two concubines, uh, uh, 12 sons, a whole lot of servants and everything. That's the family of Jacob. And this becomes the family of Israel. God takes what is dysfunctional and makes it functional. That's redemption. That's redemption. And finally, we get a community of like-minded individuals who are not biologically related at all, who says, we're going to eat in each other's house. We're going to take care of one another. We're going to love one another. We're going to figure out this thing we call family. All right, so we have, and the reason I bring that up is because we're sitting here and, and, and it's so easy. We, we, we talk about family and, and we talk about all this ideal. And, and, and I know there are people going, sitting here right now saying, but, but Pastor Mark, if you knew my situation, you knew that wouldn't apply to me. And I'm saying God knows your situation and it does apply to you because you are a part of his family. And we're going to look at five ways, five things that nurture family. And whether you're, you are alone in your home right now or whether you're in a home that's overflowing, whether you're all related or whether there's people from all over the place and you're in my house, we, never, we had a revolving tour growing up. You never knew who might be in there. I had a friend who told me decades later, he says, you have no idea what your family did for me. I never told you what was going on in my house. I mean, he came over one day and about three or four months later went home. I don't know your circumstance. I don't know your situation. God does and his word provides family for all of us. Listen to this in Mark. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. This is Mary and, 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 and Jude and James, as we call them, be Judas and, and uh, Jacob. And they're standing outside and, and others, and they're calling to him. And a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers, they're outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? He said, looking around at those who, uh, and looking about at those who sat around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Notice he doesn't say father, because we all have one father. That's what makes us mothers and brothers and sisters. Amen. He says this in, over in, in Matthew 10. And, and he, he, again, the Bible has the ideal but talks about the real. This is in Matthew 10, 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
says, how do you face that? He says this, and whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is he saying? Is he saying you shouldn't love your mother or your father? No, absolutely. We're called to honor our mother and father. It's that we don't find the way that we could love and honor them the best until we first find the one who created us in order to be loved. When we have him as the, as the one whom we are focused, we find a way to love that we could never do in ourselves, And that's what he's saying through this. How do we know? Because he loved the father so much, he went to the cross for his family. But that's not where he stops. He says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I bring that one up because I've heard this one used. It's like Jesus tells you to hate your family. He, this is, it's a Hebrew idiom. This is a Hebrew idiom. And it's very important to get this. He's not actually telling us to hate. What he's saying is your love for God compared to your love for others. This is used, I can show you multiple examples in other places. Ask me a connect group. We'll be talking more about it. But, but he's saying that, listen, what you need to do is focus on him first, even more than your own life. And guess what will happen? You'll be able to love. He says this. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. You see, he's touching every one of us who have lost. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So we have the ideal, but then he says, even if you don't have the ideal, you have something very real in family. All right, five five key themes on nurturing this family. How do we nurture this family? Number one is to nurture and protect. Creating family that has strength and cohesion. What is the first first, uh, ingredient of strength and cohesion in a family? It's love. In Ephesians, in talking about husbands and wives, Paul writes this, in the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. No, and no, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. We, we understand immediately when we read that, that nourish and cherish is parallel to love. He's telling us the definition of love. Do you want to know what love means? It means to nourish and to cherish means to nourish and to cherish. What's to cherish? Cherish is to, to, to give physical and verbal affirmation, to, uh, to nourish, to grow, to provide a sense of security. That's nourishing. What's to cherish? To give a sense of value, a sense of significance, a sense of worth. That's what we're to do. That's what love is in family. I'm going to give you a working definition of love. It's probably one of the best ones I've found. To love is to seek the highest and best for the one you love, regardless of the cost to self. It means I am doing what's best for the others, and I'm putting them before me. You see, how do you do that when you first love God? Because he did that for us. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the dilemma. We were created to be love. How many desire to be loved? 
I should see every hand. You don't have to put your hands up. But I made you ask yourself, who desires to be loved? All of us desire to be loved. In fact, more than that, we weren't just created to desire love. We were created to be love, to be it. Why? Because that's the image of God. God is love. Yet we were born cut off from love, separated from it. So we live in a world where we do what? We live in a world where we seek everything we can seek to try to find love, to get love, to put it in here. And so we're hungering and thirsting for this, and we're led about by all of our desires of our flesh, all of the desires of our mind to, to get that. And then when we come to Christ, we not only receive love, we become transformed to be love. We get a new identity. And that's what enables us to be love. Number two, truth and honesty. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of righteous person has great power and is working. Listen, if we want to have a family which is strong and cohesive, we need to be able to have a safe place to say everything we screwed up. If we can't talk about what we screwed up and what we've done wrong, we're just hiding things. If we're hiding things, It ends up coming out in other ways and other places, and we're not growing together. And if we feel that we're doing that, have we created an environment where it is safe to confess? Or is it the moment somebody does something, we come down with a hammer? Why did you do that? Or or do we do what one of my pastors did for me when I publicly screwed it up? I was on a job site yelling and screaming at people, just angry as could be, and afterwards felt this tall. And one of the pastors I respected most in the world was standing there, and then I realized he was there. I'm like, oh, and I go crawl in a hole. And he starts walking over to me. I'm going, here it comes. In my mind, I'm feeling the double barrel shotgun that's seemed right here. And he just walks past me. He's from New York, had a great New York accent, really thick New York accent. He says, it is with much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> and he kept walking right past me. So we need to be able to be truthful and honest. We need to be able to confess. We need to be able to speak truth in love, which takes me to the next one, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Wouldn't it be nice if we could go, that's one. That's two. Okay, seven, your last chance. You better not screw it up again. Truth, how many of us give one? How many of us give one? What did Jesus say? I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Or another translation, 70 times seven. What's his point? I'll tell you what his point is. If that's how much we're supposed to do it for one another, thank you, Lord, because that's how much I can come to him myself. And when I get that, then I can give that. That's why I have to love him first so I can get that in order to give it. 
Forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. The next thing we come to is identity. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the Ten Commandments, it says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, we have forever taught that as, uh, you know, don't, don't, you know, if you're going to cuss, don't use Jesus' name when you do it. Because <laughs> that's really bad. That's, that's how we've taken it, you know, or, or don't, don't just, don't, you know, don't use God's name as a swear word. Look, we shouldn't do that, and surely that's contained in it, but I'm here to tell you that's not what that commandment means. What it means is this, they are literally in the moment relationship they are with God, entering into this marriage relationship, this covenant in which they will be his people, he will be their God. They are taking on, bearing his name, and he says, don't you do that in vain. Don't you do that in vain. We used to tell our kids when they were growing up, listen, when you walk out that door, you're carrying three names with you. You're carrying your name. And the scripture says there, uh, there's nothing better than a good reputation, a good name. Number two, you're carrying with you the name of Bricado. Everything you do and where you go is going to reflect on the name Bricado. And I said, number three, you're carrying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't do it in vain. Don't do it in vain. You see, what... For if we're going to have strong, cohesive families, we have to have love. We have to have truth and honesty. We have to, to, to uh, uh, be forgiven and forgive. And we have to dep- impart the identity we have in Christ. That's why we love him first, so that we have his identity to impart in our family. Amen? All right, last one on this first one is what? SWAT, SWAT. This, this comes out of the business world. Anybody take marketing? Anybody know what a SWAT? I know some people who know what this is, a SWAT analysis. When you're, when you're doing a business analysis, you're looking for your strengths, your weaknesses, that's internal. You're looking for opportunities and threats, that's external. And I was thinking through this, I was like, that's exactly what we do in family. When you're, when you're building cohesion, you're building strength, what do you figure? You figure out what each other's strengths are, and you invite them to grow in family so they grow out there. You figure out which other's weaknesses are. Why? So you can have love and forgiveness and reconciliation and strengthening in family so you can take those outside. You look at the opportunities. What are we doing? We're constantly looking. How do we as a family move forward? We're looking at what the threats and the temptations are. How do we secure and protect? one another that is strong and cohesiveness in family amen all right number two the primary location uh, of instruction is family the primary location of instruction is in family this is proverbs one uh the very first nine verses this is what solomon says says the proverbs of solomon son of david king of israel to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness and equity. To give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In verse verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. 
If you listened carefully to what I just read, you'll notice that's not just religious instruction. That is literally about instruction for all of life. That is the primary place of learning how to live life in this world is family. You notice it's, it's giving it to the youth uh, uh, and, and um, um, uh, the simple. When I, I love when it says the simple because it doesn't, it's not, you know, a lot of people look at that and think that's just for the foolish. No, it's not talking about the foolish. It's talking about those that don't know. Those that don't know. The primary place for instruction is the family. It's the first place. Now, does that mean that we don't send our kids off to school? Well, some homeschool, that's fantastic. We did. Others use private schools. Some use the public schools. But can I tell you, no matter how you do it, you're still responsible to know what's going on, to get into conversations, to engage with what's happening. The primary place of instruction is the family. All right, number three, teach respect. Hang on. Teach respect for authority. Exodus 12, we're back to the Ten Commandments. Honor, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that Yahweh your, that Yahweh your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In Proverbs chapter 20, the opposite says this. If one curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. So we get this thing that's got a commandment on one side as to how we are to act, what? To the first people that represent authority in our lives. And then it gives us what happens when we curse that authority. And it tells us what the promise is if we do it. Here's a... Here's, um, Here's Jesus talking in the book of Luke. He said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So he's about 12 years old. They went to uh, Jerusalem for Passover and he hung out in the temple and he's talking to the, 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 the leaders in the temple, the, the rabbis in the temple, and they're astounded at what's going on. But the family, see, this, was, this gives you a picture of society. They left, not even really knowing where Jesus was, assuming he was amongst the family. When they realize he wasn't there, that's when they go back and find him. And they find him here in the temple. And Jesus is like, why, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know where I would be? Verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, he was submissive. Now, we miss this part here, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, so I, I just have to ask, I mean, we, I wish we could camp on this for, you know, all morning long. Jesus himself saw obeying the word of God, submitting himself to the authority of his parents. This is the son of God as the path forward in growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor. What is the one thing that we see in our society today that tears us down. It's disrespect for authority. Well, I would submit to you that part of that, the, the large part of that comes because of what we have done to family. When you destroy family, you destroy the structure that God set in place for the respect of authority. 
when you preserve family, you preserve that. Now, what happens if we didn't, you know, we're part of a family that someone else destroyed? That's why you love the Lord first and you honor him first. And he makes way for these things in our lives. And it takes us right to the next one. It's a place of accountability and discipline. A place of accountability and discipline. The proverb says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart. Now, I want to say something about Proverbs. Proverbs belongs to a genre of literature in the Bible called wisdom literature. It's very important to understand wisdom literature is a genre different than other types. Uh, This is not a... This is not a promise in the sense that if you do, if then otherwise, this is the way that we are to live. This isn't a guarantee that you can overcome someone else's choices. This says that if you want a home where these things will happen, you have to create that home. If you don't create that home, you're not, you should not expect these things to happen. That's what it's meaning by this. So, so if we create a home that we have these things we're talking about in it, this is potential to happen. Uh, verse 29, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now, this, I'm, I'm not bringing this up as a debate over corporal punishment. I've, you know, some people say, listen, what's the point of this verse? And we can all see this, whether that rod is, is finding a means for discipline or whether it was you know, the spankings I got as a child. It, the point being, if we don't bring discipline into our homes, we're literally going to bring shame into our homes. That's the point. Uh, now, I, I remember I was about 12 years old, um, when, uh, you know, my parents, didn't, my parents didn't have this debate about corporal punishment when I grew up. They didn't have it at all. The first, my mother, my mother, the first round was my mother, and then it got worse when she said, okay, I'm telling your father. I'm like, no, please, just go ahead and give it to me now. But I remember when I was about 12 years old, you know, I, I did something way more deserving than whatever my mother was going to give me. I just, I know that. And I took off running. And I got up and we had bunk beds. We had these, it was really, for me, for us, it was great growing up. The bunk beds my brother and I shared, they were army bunks. And we just loved that. It was the coolest thing. So I jumped, I was on the top bunk and I jumped up there. And I remember my mother, she was, she had long, the long arm of the law. She had the ability, right? And she would come up and I remember her spanking me. And I remember being about 12, being about that age going, that didn't hurt. <laughs> you know what I did? Ow! <laughs> I didn't want her to know it didn't hurt. <laughs> But this this would be pretty good. Now, trust me, that didn't that didn't make me uh, not fear, not uh, have due respect for the authority of my parents. But I wasn't stupid. <laughs> I might have been foolish, just not stupid, right? <clears throat> anyway, the the point is what if we let a child do what they want to do? Uh, here's another way of putting this: parents, you're not your child's friend first. I've seen way too many where parents want to be their friends because they're afraid of their children rejecting them rather than being the one who's teaching them. You're their teacher first. That's the loving thing. You're their nurturer first. They don't know you do. And by the way, you don't have to have an explanation at first. There's a time for explanations. That time isn't the time when it's their time to obey. 
Why is that important? Why is that important? Because if they grow up thinking that they have to have an explanation every time they want to do something they don't want to do, what's going to happen in society when the law says they have to do something that they don't want to do? How are they going to act? Or a business setting. When they're in a business setting and the business says this is what you got to do, how are they going to act? What have we taught them? Did I just go from preaching to meddling? Did I do that? Ephesians 6 says this, If children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment uh, with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, part of that discipline is not doing it the wrong way. Uh, my daughter told us when she was a, a freshman in college, she said, and she was in a Christian college and she was sharing a pod with seven other girls. And she said they got around like very early on and they were all talking about struggles in life and what it tended, what it turned into was all of them having negative things to say about family, even those who had good relationships with their parents. And it was primarily around the fact of being provoked, parents not listening. And several ended up living lives of rebellion as a result or, re- or rejection. And my daughter, I said, where were you? She says, I didn't have anything negative to say. And I'm going, okay, we screwed up plenty of things. How could you not have something negative to say? That's not self-deprecation. That's the absolute truth. About six months ago or so, she and I revisited this conversation. And, uh, and so I said, what was different? What was different to you? She says, well, it wasn't that you didn't screw up. You screwed up plenty. Honesty and family, that confession thing. She said, it's that you gave me the dignity of being a real human being even when I was four and five years old. She says, when you did screw up, you came to little Brenda and you said, Daddy did this and it was wrong. You didn't excuse it. You didn't say because I should have or because you should have or because of this. There was no clarification of it. You took responsibility and gave me the dignity to be a human being who deserved to be treated with respect and honor by owning your own. You see, discipline and accountability go both ways. They go both ways. The last one, model the faith. We close out with this. Timothy, uh, Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You might remember Jesus telling the parable that said, you know, you, you, you were, there, there are those among you who teach, you know, uh, anything I would have done for you, I've now dedicated my life to the Lord, so I don't owe this to you anymore. I'm paraphrasing the parable. Paul's saying if you live that way, you don't understand what Jesus did for you. The first point of our faith has to be modeled. It's not only what we say. It has to be words to it, but it's what we do. Do you want to know how to pass it on to your children? How are you taking care of family? How are you taking care of family? You know, 
what's interesting about this, and, and I know that this is a hard subject for a lot of people, is it doesn't necessarily say how nicely your family treated you. And that kind of stinks. But I can't tell you how many stories I've seen where someone has stepped up and said, I'm going to honor the word of God and seen, something, uh, seen a relationship get restored, get reconciled, get changed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That means verbally speaking them, telling them. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's not just a Sunday school thing. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It means they're modeled in everything that you do, how you live your life where you go, what you watch. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Parents, it's our responsibility to evangelize our children. It's our responsibility. We literally started from the womb, telling them about Jesus. The next thing is take on the questions of life and culture. There isn't a question there's never a question. Even if I don't have the answer for it, I'm going to find it. Take on the questions. So what are the five things? Nurture and protect. Nurture and protect. Number two, the primary location of instruction. Number three, teach respect for authority. Number four, the place of accountability and discipline. Number five, model it. The five keys to nurturing a family well. 